0: I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
1: Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts Katina and Garen. Today's topic is voter suppression. We discuss the history of black and brown people voting in America, share some stories from the past, and try to connect the dots to what is happening in our current events. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, Garen, before you set up the scene for us for voting, part of the reason we're talking about this is that just this recently this week that we're recording this, the House had passed that HR one bill and so that, that has some clauses in it and some stuff that it still needs to go to the Senate. And I know there's a lot of legal stuff that needs to happen if it even in order for it to get passed, but a lot of that has a lot of effects on voter suppression and voting tactics to keep people from voting. So maybe you can um, paint the picture for us and catch us up to the bill that just went through this past week.
0: Yeah, so the the Democrats say that the H.R. 1 bill is their top priority right now. Because of the filibuster in the Senate, it's kind of unsure whether they'll be able to pass it, but voting is going to be something and voting rights, voter suppression is going to be something that is going to be in the news a lot as the Democrats try to push through reform to voting. And meanwhile, Republican state legislatures all over the country are reforming voting currently in the other direction because of the false allegations of voter fraud that have been leveled over and over again by Trump. So we are going to talk about the history of voter suppression and all the obstacles in the past that were put up to prevent black people from voting and then show how those kind of shifted through time to today. So the very first thing to talk about is just the three-fifths compromise, which I think I misunderstood when I was going through school when I was like a teenager to to mean that black people had three-fifths of a vote. So just first to clarify for anyone who thinks that, That was not the case. Black people were not valued as three-fifths of a person. They actually were like negative three-fifths of a person because what really was happening was that they were used, like the number of the black population, three-fifths of it was added to the Southern states in order to increase their representation in the House of Representatives so that Southern states actually could count part of the black population that was enslaved and could not vote to increase their power to pass national legislation. So it's not that black people were given three-fifths of the ability to affect electoral outcomes. The black people were just being added to, three-fifths of their personhood was being lended to the white-controlled states in order to pass laws that maintain slavery. And so the the three-fifths compromise... I mean, it was it was terrible, and it used black people's own lives as part of the system of oppression of those same black people. The 15th Amendment, after the Civil War, gave black people the right to vote. The 14th Ra- Amendment, ratified in 1868, gave African Americans equal protection under the law but then it wasn't until the 15th amendment that that was specifically applied to voting, that they were not allowed to be disenfranchised on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Now there was an exception that was made and 28 states passed laws that disenfranchised felons and if you've listened to our convict leasing episode, you'll hear us talk about the black codes, these laws that were passed that were basically used to criminalize hundreds of thousands of black people for false, just absurd crimes like vagrancy or not working, on, not being willing to work on a Saturday, mm. asking for alternative employment, getting a job somewhere other than at the former plantation that you were enslaved at. All these things were criminalized, talking to a white woman. These things were criminalized and were used in those that early period to take away black people's ability to vote. And then also just racial violence was even in Re- Reconstruction, there were thousands of lynchings and mass, and not thousands of mass killings, but n- dozens of mass killings and thousands of other lynchings that happened in that 12-year period. So there was a ton of racial violence that was used to deter black people from voting. And a lot of that was specifically directed against the right to vote. There were cases where they would just actually kill black people for coming and trying to vote. So during Reconstruction, the, the North was still kind of policing the South. And so there the, in the South, they had to use like terrorism, but there was still some accountability. But then after Reconstruction ended, all those Northern troops left. In the South, it was like open season. So you saw, for example, that In Mississippi, voter registration among black people shortly after Reconstruction fell from 70% to 15%. In Louisiana, registered voters went from, in in 1896, 130,000, down to, in 1904, 1,300. So 1% of what it had been. Mm. Registered voters in Alabama plunged from 180,000 to fewer than 3,000 in just three years. And this all happened as a result of Uh, Mississippi actually was the first state to pass a plan that was like a thorough plan to repress voters uh, among black people. But then basically their plan, once it passed the Supreme Court, once the Supreme Court didn't strike it down, other states all adopted plans that were very similar. So we'll talk about the Mississippi plan here, but really it was the whole South that did this. In 1890, the Mississippi legislature drafted and passed a new constitution that effectively disenfranchised and disarmed most blacks by erecting barriers both to firearm ownership as well as voter registration. And they used methods and we're going to talk about these in, in turn with more detail of polling taxes, subjective literacy literacy tests and more restrictive residency requirements. And these were these were super effective. You can see how the the number of registered voters in the south just plummeted. The Mississippi senator Theodore Bilbo boasted at that time. What keeps him blacks from voting is section 244 of the Mississippi Constitution of 1890. It says that a man to register must be able to read and able to explain the constitution or able to explain the constitution when read to him. Mississippi then created a constitution that damn few white men and no N-words at all can understand. So Bilbo admitted that, he, that they had created these literacy tests deliberately to exclude black people from the ability to vote. But really what what ended up happening was that the registrars, these racist registrars all throughout the South had the final and unappealable say on whether or not somebody passed a literacy test or not. And they could give whatever passage to people that they wanted to determine whether they could read or write. And so what actually happened in practice was that White people would come in to register to vote and they would be given maybe a line or two from the the state constitution or the constitution and asked to read it, ask what it meant, real basic, and then would maybe even be helped if they couldn't understand it. And then black people would come in to register to vote and they basically would be given impossible sections. And then the other thing that plays into this was that black schools were deliberately underfunded generally funded at a quarter of the level of, of white schools or less. So here's here's an example of a section of the state constitution that black people would be asked to read, write down perfectly, and then interpret. And this is one that was actually used. And, and just place yourself in the shoes of a black aspiring voter in the South and you're coming, and it's already such an act of bravery to come and try to register to vote, and probably facing racist white people at the door of the registrar's office. One story that kind of illustrates this is that of Neon Alexander. He was a black coal miner who was trying to register to vote in Alabama shortly after World War II. So he came to the registrar's office And he stood there, and he waited and waited while the registrar just made an obvious show of deliberately ignoring him. And then some white people came in to the registrar's office, and the registrar just immediately jumped to helping them and got them all registered to vote, and then just went back to ignoring Neon Alexander. After a while, he waited so long that the registrar just got irritated and said, What do you want, boy? He said, I want to register to vote. The registrar got the form, which Alexander promptly filled out. He was educated to the point that he was able to read the section. He wrote out the section of the Constitution that he was supposed to write. The moment he was done, without even reviewing or reading the sheet, the registrar crumpled up the piece of paper and threw it away. He said, you're disqualified. You didn't answer the question. So then in the end, it, it took three white officials and the coal miners' union to get Alexander registered to vote. But even then, the registrar had the last laugh because even in registering him, he didn't actually add him to the state rolls. So when Alexander actually went to vote, he was told that they couldn't find his name. Those who were registering to vote were given sections of the state constitution that sometimes, and again, this was up to the registrar, that sometimes were like impossible. And, and I'm just going to read a section of the cons- one of the state constitutions that actually was used. Like This is a historical thing, that this is what black people in this era would have had to read and write and understand, even with a poor education, a underfunded education, uh, as was so often the case in that day. So just put yourself in their shoes. Here you are, nervous, wanting to pass this test so that you can have the right to vote and uplift your not just your life, but your community and be heard by these politicians who otherwise have no incentive to even address or care what you think. And then you're given this, section 260. The income arising from the 16th Section Trust Fund, the Surplus Revenue Fund, until it is called for by the United States Government, and the funds enumerated in Sections 256 and 258 of this Constitution, together with a special annual tax of 30 cents on each $100 of taxable property in this state, which the legislature shall levy, shall be applied to the support and maintenance of the public schools. And it shall be the duty of the legislature to increase the public school fund from time to time as as necessary, therefore, and the continuation of the treasury and the resources of that state may justify, provided that nothing herein contained shall be construed as to authorize the legislature to levy in any one year a greater rate of tax... Of, a greater rate of state taxation for all purposes, including schools, than 65 cents on each $100 worth of taxable property and provided further that nothing herein shall prevent the the legislature from first providing for the payment of the bonded indebtedness of the state and interest thereon out of all of the revenue of the state. (laughs) That's what they had to, to interpret. That was the standard and, and and ain't nobody gonna be able to interpret that. And well, yeah, if it couldn't they couldn't,
1: you couldn't even read that, right?
0: Uh, that ain't even. a couple of times.
1: White folks can't even do that one. Like nobody.
0: And <laughs> even if they could, the registrar could just say that wasn't good enough. Exactly. And they would, and then there'd be it was unappealable. The registrar got the final say. And I think what also something
1: to say is that we can hear that story of. Uh, what was his name?
0: Neon Alexander.
1: We can hear that and we hear, oh, he was educated and could read and write. And we're like, oh man, give this give this guy a shot. But like how many people weren't educated and weren't given the shot, w- wouldn't even th- think about going to the office to get registered. Like right. it's important that it's not just people like him, yeah. the educated and, you know, maybe slightly elevated because he had literacy, but there's a lot of people that didn't get that education, that couldn't do that, that have the same value as a human being, as someone who is extremely educated
0: mm-hmm. and
1: still not given the chance to even register to yeah. vote. Yeah, because voting in a democracy should just be a basic human right, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think well, we'll probably get into this, but I'm not sure how much... I mean, again, we're, like, assuming that this, this is what they're what they're doing. But, like, there can only be so many reasons why you would not want someone to vote. Mm-hmm. And it's not because they're not eligible or there's some weird thing about they need to learn something from the Constitution. Right. It's because they don't... They wouldn't vote for you. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason to suppress a vote. Mm-hmm. I mean... Maybe there are more, or but. they wouldn't vote to up, uphold the the systems that you want to. I mean, they don't want black people voting for their own freedom, mm-hmm. and, we, and we see that today. I mean, we'll get into yeah. it, but like, what's the yeah? What is the real reason that you don't want someone to vote in our country? And I'm not speaking of like someone who just came over here in a ship, you know, sneak snuck into our country, and they're trying to give a vote. I'm talking about just people that are here that have lived right. here their whole lives that are American citizens there's we're, we're taking the extreme extremes off the table just Americans like what's the real reason you don't want them to vote I don't know if there's much past because they won't vote for what you want them to vote for right
0: mm-hmm. yeah interesting the politicians will pursue power and if you can get more power by suppressing the vote, then that's what your incentives are. In this system here, Like Jim Crow had to get rid of black votes because in a lot of these states, in a lot of these counties, the, blo- the black population was sufficient that if they allowed black people to vote, they would have taken control of state legislatures and passed laws that would have ended their own oppression. They, w- they would have been able to pass laws that would have made it so that so they could take Saturday off without being criminalized mm-hmm. to make it so that you know they had the ability to seek other employment without going to jail. They would have been able to end convict leasing and take that away as a threat that could be used to manipulate them. They could have voted for sheriffs that would have prosecuted white sharecroppers raping the black tenants that worked for them. They could have passed all those changes. And so Sometimes people will, they have this idea that like, well, you should only have the educated people voting because they're going to be more educated in how they vote. But what that misses is just the the ways that power corrupts and is used to oppress. And then if you don't have everyone, even like the poorest person having the ability to vote, then those who are elected could not care less what the poorest person thinks if if they know that he can't vote. They have zero incentive to help him in any way. And as soon as somebody's able to vote, it's not just that they can pick other leaders, but whatever leaders are there, regardless of whether they got that person's vote, they are aware of that person being in the equation and they're going to act differently and have different incentives than they would if that person is not allowed to vote. And that's what happened throughout the South. Even as late as 1954, only 3% of African-Americans in the South were registered to vote. Like 54. It's like right before Brown versus Board of Education. That's like front end of the civil rights movement. And that is like not a long time ago. People from that era are alive now, a lot of them. And only 3% of African-Americans were registered to vote. So throughout the South, there was just politicians were able to have an utter disregard for what black people thought or how they treated them. And even at the state and local level, black people couldn't vote for roads to be put through the black half of town. So there's a lot of towns where it was a majority black county and they weren't able to put people there in power that would pave the roads or add sanitary lines so they could get off septic. Or, you know, take these basic steps that would just distribute state and local funds evenly. So there's like black municipalities or majority black municipalities where all the infrastructure was put on the white side of the line. And I think that even ties again to the whole
1: idea of politicians and people, white people saying that black people just need to work harder and this is... You know it's what you make of it, and you right. just need to like what a spit in the face that comment is, just even hearing that of mm-hmm. like they weren't even able to vote for putting roads or not getting off a of septic, all these things where their neighborhoods literally were just exponentially not being upgraded as the white parts of town, and to say, "Well, you just need to work harder." You can see how that is not, that's like a two, it's like a two time slap in the face. While still having to pay taxes. Like yeah. their mm-hmm. tax, their taxation wasn't any different.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and yeah. sometimes it was worse in property tax. Black people in, in a lot of parts of towns, they were charged three to nine times higher property tax rate than yeah. the white people were because the tax assessors were racist. Right. And yet, that money they couldn't they weren't allowed to vote for people to use that money to improve their parts of town. Exactly. And so, let's get into a couple other just methods that were used in that era. Another one was the grandfather clause. Mississippi was one of the first states to put forth a grandfather clause. It basically said that if your grandfather or your like people in your line were able to vote prior to the Civil War then you were like automatically able to vote. You were registered. And so obviously black people who were descendants of slaves did not have grandfathers who could vote before the Civil War. So it's just a, just a very explicitly racist test for voters. And it was one of the ones that was struck down by the courts earlier than the others, I think in 1915 is when the grandfather clause was struck down. But I mean, were they allowing their... If they had a white grandfather,
1: could they vote?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. Right, and that's
1: the point. Uh huh. Because it's like a lot of them had white grandfathers, so... Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Right? That doesn't even usually... I don't even usually hear that brought into it, but right. that is completely in the background. Another one that was used was the poll tax. Poll taxes were, for white people an insignificant amount of money. But for sharecroppers in that day, a lot of sharecroppers did not actually make any money. Right. Like literally no money cuz what the way the sharecropping system would work was that they would borrow from the landowner for all the things that they needed during the year and then at settlement time the landowner would pay them their portion for the crops that were raised, but In most cases, the majority of cases, so in 80% of cases, a fair settlement was not given. And in more than half of cases, sharecroppers at the end of the year would either say, you didn't make enough portion to even pay what you borrowed from me during the year, so now you owe me more, and they would work them into a snowball of debt. Or they would say, we're even, what, what you borrowed from me, from like my shop, the food provisions, um, you know, the house that, like the former slave quarters that you stayed in were even, the, the amount of crops you raise pays for that. But they wouldn't actually get any money. For black people who had these destitute conditions, the, the poll tax represented uh, an average of two to six percent of their annual income. Yeah. And that's just, to be able to vote. And then also it was even worse because it was cumulative in a lot of cases where if you registered to vote and then the next three years you didn't vote, then you'd have to pay three years of back poll taxes in order to vote now in this other election that you care about. For white people, it was not such a high hurdle. But the other thing is, it actually did hurt a lot of poor white people because there were also poor white people. And you can see how after they implemented the poll tax, The rate of voting in southern states, in in some southern states, the rate of voting fell from like in the ballpark of sixty down to around twenty percent. So a lot of white people also stopped voting, and the white people who stopped voting are precisely those who are poorest, because it's a basically it's a flat tax rate. So the more wealthy you are, you know, it's not a big deal, but if you're poor, that's who's not voting anymore. So the poll taxes did not just operate against black people, but also against poor whites. Another method that they used throughout the South was uh, a white primary. So they started just only... It, the, the Democratic Party was the, the party of racism at that time, which, I mean, we need to do an episode at some point so that we don't have to explain this every time. But basically, a lot of Southern Democrats left the Democratic Party later on during like the civil rights era and joined the Republican Party, and there was like a balance of power that that shifted at that time. So it's not as basically when you hear Democrat and Republican, those there was a realignment of the parties that happened um, in the Civil Rights Era. So prior to that, they were different. Demo- the Southern states always voted Democrat back then. So the the Democratic Party had a primary that they only allowed white voters to vote in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So even if you were a black person who overcame all the obstacles, one of those 3% who got registered to vote, you weren't allowed to vote in the Democratic primary. But then you lived in a state where there was such slanted numbers towards the Democrats that the general election was a foregone conclusion. You knew that the Democrat was going to win. So you're not able to add your voice to which Democrats get in power. And if you could, then the Democrats would have maybe a slight reason to appeal to you because they want a little boost. If it's an even race, uh, one Democrat against another, maybe they say something to the black community and say like, hey, I'll put a sanitary line in to get their vote. But then, but then they couldn't add any voice to which Democrats got chosen, and then in the general election, it was just like a foregone conclusion that they would win. So there was just a back and forth, and we won't go into all of that, but the Supreme Court kind of gradually struck that down to the point where it finally got um, struck down fully in like 1953. So these methods were super effective in in 1867, so shortly after the Civil War, 66.9% of African Americans were registered to vote in Mississippi and in 1955 it was 4.3%. Across the South, only 3%, like I said earlier, were registered to vote in 54. There were 11 majority black counties that had only 1.3% of all eligible blacks registered to vote. And in two of those, not a single African-American was registered to vote.
1: Mm.
0: So throughout the South, there was just this insurmountable system that prevented black people from voting. And then if you can't surmount the system, then you can't change the system. And so it was; uh, it, it couldn't be changed from from within. And it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act that any of this actually changed, started to change. So the Voting Rights Act was a powerful piece of legislation uh, passed in 1965. And it basically made it so that all of these provisions that we've talked about so far were struck down and they couldn't use them anymore. And so there was a flood of black people coming into the voting booth shortly after the Voting Rights Act was passed in Mississippi. Black voter registration went from less than ten percent in 1965 to sixty percent in 68. In Alabama, the figure rose from twenty four percent to fifty seven percent in 1967. Mississippi elected its first African American to Congress since Reconstruction. And then, just as an aside, that to see like how did white people view it at the time? Because I think it's like a similar similar to how white people kind of victimized themselves now Strom Thurmond and other prominent southern politicians regaled the law and said that the the voting rights act should be unconstitutional because it discriminated against the south mm-hmm. so racism didn't go away it just adapted and that's a thing that we see in a lot of different ways that we've looked at different ways that racism has adapted so how did it adapt well southern politicians or just, just i mean this isn't just a south phenomenon just racist white people around the country found new ways to suppress the, the black vote. And so I'll just go through some of these. Um, one was that they, in some places, they just took out all the names of all the people who you were voting for. So the only way you could vote was to write in the name of the candidate. After vote, after the Voting Rights Act, Virginia tried to get around it by removing candidates' names from the ballot and forcing Voters to write in the names, knowing that higher rates of illiteracy among minorities would reduce their representation in the vote. And then also, you can, if you do something like that, you can kind of give give the white community a bit of a heads up of what's coming in order to tilt the vote more towards your candidates. Another thing in Mississippi, they change the voting rules around the districts to make votes at large rather than. Basically, rather than electing a member for your particular district, it's a whole bigger geographical area, area that would vote on who would lead each district. And so what happened is basically they, they just used that to dilute the black vote so that black people would not be a majority in any particular area and wouldn't be able to elect any black members. And in Alabama, they changed the borders around Tuskegee, Alabama repeatedly until black voters were deluded to the point that they couldn't win any elections and they argued that they had sovereignty as a state to draw city boundaries wherever they happened to want but they didn't have a single race neutral reason for why they were redrawing the boundaries the only logical reason was you know, to, to change the electoral math so that they could control another thing that happened was just continued disenfranchisement of felons African Americans statistically don't do drugs any more than other Americans, but they're six times more likely to be imprisoned on drug charges. Right. And so that played into disenfranchisement as well. And then also, a lot of large prisons were located in conservative counties. And so basically, the prison population was not allowed to vote, but their number through the census was added to that county so that they still increased the representation share for that county. So that they basically, I mean, it was similar to the Three-Fifths Compromise where their personhood counted against them and the, the leaders of those counties had no electoral incentive at all to help their conditions in any way. Other tactics was, uh, is that, that have been used is to just get long lines in the black community, so in ten in the 10 precincts with the longest delays, 70% of the voters were black or Latino in 2012. Or opposition to early voting is another one. Early voting is most beneficial to poorer people, people who are working class, who can't take off on a Tuesday to go vote. And so early voting allows them to have a more conducive time to be able to go vote. So opposing early voting as a way of opposing not just black people, but poorer people in general. In 2008, African Americans in Florida were 13% of the electorate, but 35% of the early votes. Another tactic is to move polling places, and you'll see this happen a lot in the modern day, where polling places will be changed maybe at the last minute, or they'll be put further away from the black parts of town. Spartan Georgia moved the black voting location 17 miles from the black part of town. And that was in response to a study that showed that the black vote dropped off by a certain percentage for each half mile that the voting location was from where they lived. And then another one is to close polling places, to just which makes longer lines at the remaining polling places in black areas of town, and it just also moves the average polling place further from the black community. So in 2016 there were 868 fewer polling places in areas that were previously protected by, by the Voting Rights Act. And I should say to set that up, that basically in 2013, the Voting Rights Act was partially struck down. So up until, from when it was passed in 65 until 2013, it was very effective. Mm -hmm. And it made it so that all former Confederate states that had former like racist patterns of voting, um, they had to get prior approval to make changes to their voting laws. And the Justice Department had to basically sign off on it. But then in 2013, the Supreme Court decided that basically they said, well, this is a problem that we've solved. Racism is not a thing anymore, so we're not going to make them do this anymore. And so then there was just literally within two hours of the Supreme Court issuing that decision, states started imposing new voter restrictions. And... 2016 was the first uh, first big election since that Supreme Court decision, and 868 polling places were shut down, mm. mostly affecting African Americans and m- other minorities. Yeah. 180 new voter uh, voting restrictions were created in 41 states, and 27 laws were created in 19 states, all states controlled by the GOP in response to the Voting Rights Act being kind of stripped. And then within two hours of the Shelby decision, Texas implemented voter ID laws that courts have since found to be racially discriminatory. So, for instance, in Texas and other states, voter IDs that are accepted, a government-issued voter ID that's accepted is like a gun license. But one that is not accepted, that is also a government-issued voter ID, is a public housing voting, voting ID. So it's like, what's a race-neutral reason why the one is acceptable but the other is not? But the, I mean, the voting ID law, laws that are, um, they seem innocuous in some ways. They seem like race neutral. You know, it seems just like a small detail that one voting ID is selected and another's not. But the way it actually works is that state legislatures sit together in a room and they look at studies of what percentages of people have different kinds of IDs and they craft which voting IDs are accepted based on who they know doesn't doesn't have those types of IDs. Students are known to be more left-leaning, and so student IDs at state universities are not accepted. And there's just this like picking and choosing where, you know, politicians pick which voters get to get to vote. There's a 4.9% gap between white voters and Latino voters in states that don't require a photo ID, and a 13.2% gap, so two and a half times the size in states that require photo IDs. For Asians, the gap goes from six six 6.5% to 11.5%, and for blacks it goes from 2.9% to 5.4% when you require voting IDs. Because poorer communities and disadvantaged communities don't have all the same IDs. For white people, you just assume everyone has a driver's license because everyone you know has a driver's license. But a lot of poor people don't have driver's licenses because cars are extremely expensive. Cars, you do you have to buy the car itself, the gasoline to put in it, the, the insurance, the registration. And a lot of people can't afford that. And those people also need to be represented in our government or it creates the same patterns and systems of injustice that have plagued our country for this whole time. Yeah. So overall, after the Shelby decision was struck down, black votes went down by 7% in the election that followed from what they had been previously. And then the last thing that we need to talk through is gerrymandering. And this is another so the the HR1 bill that's currently moving through the government addresses all of this, but gerrymandering I think is way bigger threat to democracy than most people realize. Gerrymandering is basically this method that political parties in power can use to draw and redraw political maps in order to maintain control of state legislatures and the House of Representatives. And the way that it works is basically if you were to take a perfectly gerrymandered map, like if you gerrymandered it all the way to give yourself the complete advantage, you could actually control the legislature only having 26% of the vote. And the way you would do that is you would basically take all of the voters who oppose you and pack them all into districts where they're like a hundred percent all going to vote a certain way, and so then those districts they'll elect the you know the opposite party. It works on it, it happens on both sides, but mostly it's Republicans who are doing it because they control control most of the legislatures. So, so let's say that if you're a Republican who's gerrymandering, you're going to pack all the Democrats into one district together, and they just a hundred percent vote elect a Democrat. And then you take all these other districts and you you stack it so there's just slightly more Republicans than Democrats. And so then you narrowly win all those districts. And you can un- actually end up with a minority, uh, even a relatively small minority of voters. You can control the state legislatures. And then what happens is it's the legislatures in a lot of states that draw the new maps each time. So it's a cycle because the state legislatures are basically giving themselves an entrenched advantage that they use then each census to maintain that entrenched advantage and even grow it as they come up with better and better algorithms to make these maps. But what people don't realize is that gerrymandering also is the whole reason why there's growing partisanship in America. Because what gerrymandering does is it essentially takes, it eliminates competitive districts. And the whole point of gerrymandering is that basically you're trying to create districts that are tilted very extreme on the other side and a little bit extreme on your side so that you know you're going to win. And you're removing moderate districts. You're redrawing the map so that there's no more moderate districts. In a moderate district, whether a Republican or a Democrat wins, that politician who ended up winning, he's going to have a lot of reason to stay moderate because he knows that he needs to appeal to the, the centrist district and he needs to appeal to the people in the middle in order to keep winning. But whenever you take a district and you tilt it one way or the other so that it's kind of extreme in one direction or the other, what ends up happening is whoever wins that district, they're more worried about a primary challenge from the extreme of their party, the far left or the far right, than they are about winning their general election because they know that they're going to win the general election. So what they're worried about, all their decisions in Congress are based entirely on the fear of what if someone further to the left or further to the right challenges me for my seat. And then I don't care about moderate, moderation or appealing to the middle. And so you end up with a whole bunch of, of people who are, have no incentive to cross the aisle, no incentive to come up with moderate solutions, no incentive to actually be the, you know, the grease that gets the cogs of government working. And so that's why, since gerrymandering really picked up in the last, really, I mean, it's been in the last 10 years that got really bad. And then it's likely to get even worse now after this next census that just happened. There's just this breakdown, this awful breakdown where partisanship just goes to the extremes. And you see that in the voting records of politicians where they used to cross the aisle a significant, more than most politicians used to cross the aisle in their voting like a quarter of the time. And then now you almost never see politicians crossing the aisle for anything. And so gerrymandering is detrimental, not just to black communities that then are, they suffer the worst through gerrymandering, gerrymandering historically. But it also is just harmful to our democracy and to, towards any ability to, to make progress. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more
1: information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out at patreon.com/backslash black history for white people. On our next episode, we will be discussing health and black motherhood. We'll leave you with this quote from Lilla Watson. If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together.